At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 715th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to our December seed chat. I'm really excited to have a conversation yet again with Bill McDormand. Bill is the co-founder of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, SeedSave.org, Seed School, and the Great American Seed Up. Bill has been teaching seed saving for decades and is dedicated to educating communities about the value of seed saving and local seeds as a foundation for a local food system. Tonight, we're talking about Bill recently returned from the ninth session of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture in New Delhi. He will share what he learned about how the world is protecting the genetic resources of shareholder farmers in the global south who contribute so much to the diversity and genetic pool of our seeds. Now, that was a UN thing, wasn't it? Yes, that was. Right. Uh huh. And so I'll explain a little bit about that. Let's do it. And how, how that fits in. Perfect. First, I just want to invite questions. If you're trying to understand how all this fits into your life or your organization or your individual seed saving, it does. I mean, I think it's important for everybody to understand what is going on on our fragile little planet as far as seed saving. And this is certainly something that's part of that. And so I, what I thought I'd do is just start with a little bit of the story of how did I get there? I had my own seed company for 28 years and then was involved with nonprofits for, for more than 10 years before I found myself sitting with Abel, my wife, and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance at the time, uh, Leanne Hill, at the eighth session of the International Treaty. So what is the session? The sessions are the governing body gets together every four years to actually implement and work out details of a treaty that was signed, what, if we're in the ninth session, about 35, 36 years ago. And whenever you sign a treaty, there's always devil in the details. Oh, right. I mean, the way they can get the United Nations gets countries to sign into a treaty is around a basic set of principles. But oftentimes it's like the, the uh, treaty on climate change. There's a lot of stuff still to be worked out. And so this particular treaty was first debated for a number of years. And then the United Nations was foremost in bringing countries of the world. And I think there were 140 countries originally that signed on, the U.S. not being one of them. We were one of the holdouts, actually, <laughs> for the Convention on Biodiversity, which we have not signed, which just finished yesterday, if you've been reading the news. They finally got everybody to sign around some general principles. And so then they've got to work out the details. And I'll tell you that a lot of the details have yet to be worked out. 
the really important, but it's a very interesting exercise. And so at the second seed summit that we did in Santa Fe for the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we had some visitors from Zimbabwe, friends, Joseph Mushanga and Andrew Mushita came to our summit. They had heard about it. And they have a nonprofit in Zimbabwe that they run of trying to teach people how to save seeds and build a regional seed network, kind of what we're doing, but they're in a completely different country, part of the world, but a lot of crossover. They were so impressed by what we were doing that they invited us to the upcoming, at that time, eighth session. And they thought it would be really good. And it was for a really interesting reason. They uh, represented smallholder farmers Mm. at the convention. And if you wanted to grossly oversimplify what's going on there, you would say that there's two factions. There's the smallholder farmers of the world, of which there are, there's got to be millions, 65 million that are directly represented by people at the conference. And then what has come to be lovingly called the global north. And those are Canada, the United States, some of the European countries that actually have the seed companies, the global gene giants that own much of the world's commercial and industrial seed. And so it's us versus them, smallholder farmers versus the big gene giants. And almost every issue that still has to be resolved in the treaty comes down to arguments between those two basic groups. Andrew Mushita thought it would be interesting to have a representative from the United States that was actually arguing for the smallholder farmers. I mean, that's what we were trying to do. We're setting up a network of individual seed savers, and we want a a, a regional seed shed here made up of thousands, if not millions of seed savers. That's our vision. That was our vision for someday, simply because I think through climate change, we'll have intact agricultures that will ensure the diversity. And people all over the world are waking up to this idea. But up to that point, in the first seven sessions, no one had ever been officially at these sessions, at this international treaty governing body sessions, from the United States that represented smallholder farmers. uh, All the U.S. rep up to that point have been large companies, Mm -hmm. and then people from the U.S. government representing company um, values and perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that we would show there's, it's more to it than that. The United States just isn't all big business, that there are real people saving real seeds here too. So that was the eighth session. That was the eighth session. Because of things we did and say, I was able to actually make a presentation there. Thank you, Alan. Andrew, on a panel, an official presentation, and all of what we call, they, I've come to learn, uh, the world calls the nonprofits, they call them NGOs, mm-hmm. or uh, civil society organizations. Yep. All their reps there were able to come to these side sessions. So I got an invitation to the ninth session. I was no longer working with Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And the ninth session was in September. It was in September. Of this, this year. year. Yep. Of this year. Now, it had been postponed because of COVID. It -hmm. was supposed to be, be, they were trying to do one the year before. There's lots of business. They're trying to get them up and running. Mm -hmm. And so this was actually, they do them every two years, excuse me. And this had been three years because Mm -hmm. of COVID. So this is the first time people are coming back together for the ninth. Long story short, I invited Global Seed Savers, an organization out of Denver, 
to partner with me to raise the funds to go and represent the United States this time. And so that's what we did. And they're a fantastic organization. Sherry Manning and Karen Hizola, who is a Philippines director for Global Seed Savers. Sherry Manning's the executive director from Denver and I found ourselves this time in India. It turns out that different countries sponsor the sessions each time. I, I think what they try to do is go back to Rome every other session. And so the eighth session we went to was in Rome. This one was in New Delhi, India. Nice. It was, like, it was only 12 and a half hours time zones wise. That's kind of how I measure stuff. I found myself in a room sitting down with people from more than a hundred countries. There were wow. some absences still because of COVID, but it's really a treat. If you think you understand what's going on in the world, or if you have really strong opinions, my suggestion is to sit down in a room, actual room and see and feel and even interact with people from a hundred different countries or more. Wow. And you realize that it's hard to draw generalizations. <laughs> the session is there to hammer out this time the governing body to restart negotiations, which had broken down at the eighth session around some really important topics that have never been resolved. Things like farmers' rights, even though there is a farmers' rights section in the original treaty, how those are applied in specific ways has never been really detailed. There was also a need to discuss DSI as it's become known. And if you've been following the news about the Convention on Biodiversity that just closed in Toronto, I think, they had a breakthrough. At that UN-based international convention, which is the same as the one I'm going to, only this one focuses on biodiversity for the whole planet. Uh -huh. Our treaty just focuses on the biodiversity for agriculture that's necessary for it. It's a subset of it. So anyway, DSI is digital sequencing information. That's what it stands for. And what that pertains to is the fact that the wealthy countries, the global north, so to speak, have companies now and governments that are sequencing the DNA of plants that largely came from the world's small farmers right. for pharmaceuticals and for our food crops. They're now sequencing the DNA and storing that information in their own computers. And in a sense, there's this feeling that they don't even need seeds or the plants anymore. That, that once they understand the, all the digital sequences and they have genetic engineering, they'll be able to create the differences and the kinds and changes in plants that they're going to need to wow. keep their corporations run. Well, as you can imagine, this is freaking out the world's farmers because mm -hmm. implicit in the original treaty was that there would be, and this has never been resolved, compensation to the yeah, world's small, small farmers. Right. As you're sharing this, I'm thinking, hold on, they're taking this without compensating the small farmers. Wow. Well, that's one point of view. Yeah. And you, you would have to say that point of view probably represents the majority of people that are represented at the session. Mm -hmm. I mean, the African Union alone, which is there, has 55 million farmers. India has, you know, 17 million farmers, I think. I may be underestimating that. It's just unbelievable the amount of small farmers around the planet. And now 
genetic material, their seeds have ended up in 11 large gene banks and in several large corporate, corporate seed storage facilities. And they're being used to create new crops, which arguably make millions, if not billions of dollars in profit for the big companies. Actually, the treaty was set up originally, however many years ago, and I can't remember exactly. And, and there's a link to the final report of this session that I just got a PDF for the other day. And so I put a link in the chat for that. So uh -huh. you can Compensation has never been paid. Well, there was a system set up to pay, but there's been no money. There's really been no money. There are loopholes in how, what the companies have to do. They don't have to pay any compensation until and unless a successful new variety is created. And that can take 10 to 20 years. By then, there's no paper trail for it. Also, there's ways for them to get material out of the na national gene banks and use that instead of giving it, getting it out of the official system. And so that's being used. Uh, yeah, it goes on and on. But basically, little or no money, has, no compensations ever happened. And now they're taking digital sequencing off the top of that, and they're even going to use that more under the guise that, oh, we want all the digital information in the world to be open source for everybody. We don't want to hide anything. We're just doing this because it's science and it'll make this available to big corporations or whoever can use it. Well, the fact is small farmers can't use that. Right. And all, yeah. And all that sequencing came from their seeds, their seeds. So you're right. One side says, you, you stole all our stuff. We need to get compensated. We need farmers rights. We need to be able to grow and save and share our own seeds. The U.S. enforces laws through the World Trade Organization to keep many of the world's farmers from actually doing even that. Wow. It's illegal in many countries, especially in Africa. Maybe 60% of the farmers in Africa are under some sort of restrictive rules to even save their own seeds. And so that's one viewpoint. The, the viewpoint of the Global North is that I heard a gentleman at a presentation say these exact words. He said, there is no innovation without privatization, without privatization. In other words, the, if, you, if you can't patent seeds and new nope. varieties, there's not going to be any new innovation. So that's their viewpoint. They're not stealing. They're saving the world by innovating enough wow. to create new things. And there's still 600 million people or a billion people starving on the planet. It's an unsolvable <laughs> argument. Yeah. So the treaty, everyone came together. There were hopes, I'd have to say. And these, again, everyone, these are my own opinions. The global north is not going to give in. And the U.S. is largely seen as blocking, if not watering down every proposal that mm -hmm. comes about that threatens in any way, shape or form the hegemony that these big companies have, their ability yeah. to patent seeds, their ability to have those protected and to further a system through the World Trade Organization so that every seed in the world is controlled in a sense that you can't just openly grow and save and share seeds. That sort of summarizes what's going on. I don't believe there will be a breakthrough. I read some of the wording about digital sequencing information that came out of the Convention on Biodiversity. And basically it said there was a breakthrough, but the breakthrough was to start the discussions about the details. Oh. 
And I just was at the ninth session. They're still discussing the details. At least they're back at the table and starting to discuss things. So that's really good. Again, I'd be happy to answer any questions. I think it's important for us all to understand that there are people on the world level discussing these things. I think the big change since the treaty has been started and it's starting to accelerate is that the hundreds of millions of small farmers in the, in the world are now represented well. Mm-hmm. There are NGOs and civil society organizations. Um, think about it. They all have cell phones now. We're, we're living in a different era just in the last few years. And mm-hmm. so it's not as though you can have big companies from the North get by and do what they want simply because they're more organized and they're rolling these things out and nobody even knows what they're doing. It's like now the small farmers know what they're doing. And they're about to hit a line where they say, no more. We're just going to take all our seeds. We're going to call them what they are, stolen. We're just going to take them and you're going to have no more access. That's what we can do right away to what's going on. And that's really why the treaty was started in the beginning. I'm, I'm coming back around. The treaty was started because the Global North wanted access, continued access to genetic material. Why? Because every crop they have is being attacked. And now with climate change, they're not working as well. There's either drought or heat, especially on the world crop. So what do they have to yeah. do? They go to the third world, find varieties that are already adapted and bring them in. And if they don't have access to that material, well, it doesn't, their system doesn't last very long. As much as they have, it probably won't last that long, but it, it's always more complicated than that. And, you know, I guess my own opinion and I'll, and I'll, I'll open it up for questions. I want to make one other point, but we need every system right now, Greg, every system. Mm. That's true. If you think about what's happening with all the people that are still hungry and all the stuff. So we need to find. So it's probably not a good idea. This was my own personal epiphany is is not to bad mouth or to or to demonize anyone. In fact, I got up early one morning and and had coffee with the U.S. representative. Oh, very good. All right. Nobody on the smallholder farmer side had ever talked to them. They didn't really know. What was going on? I have a friend, Francois from uh, Switzerland, who had actually met, but and he suggested it. And I actually had coffee one morning and a delightful person and really a big heart and really believes that the U.S. is there to do the right thing. Okay, they're, good. They're just in a different universe. It's not about innovation and privatization. Mm-hmm. It's about the freedom to take care of the materials and the system that created all this diversity. Yeah in the first place. So the other thing I want to say, I got to go to Navdanya while I was there, which was about a 45 minute flight from New Delhi up into Dehradun, into the mountains, the foothills of the Himalaya, where Vandana Shiva operates one, I think one of the most amazing seed education centers on the planet. But it was deeply inspiring. We got to meet Vandana while she was there. She treated us like royalty. Uh, For all you've read, both positive and negative about her, I'll just say this. She's just a really nice person. When I was getting ready to leave, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon, and there was a ride there to take me to the airport to take us, Karen and Sherry and I. And she goes, but Beal, you haven't eaten yet. They haven't served lunch yet. And I said, well, you know, we'll figure it out. We're traveling. And she went into the kitchen and got the cook and 
got some food together for us and brought it out that that kind of personal attention and i was deeply touched by that so i just want to humanize her that was probably the most powerful thing that came out and what they're doing there is unbelievable as far as changing the paradigm and changing the world around seeds. So what, as far as the conference goes, what was, what was one of the most or a striking thing that you saw when you were there? Other than the conference itself, it's just striking. As I said, it's all the colors and the clothing and the languages and Mm. all. It reminds you you're just part of the world. For me, the highlight of the thing was that Karen, Hizola, got to deliver the farmer's rights statement on behalf of all the NGOs Wow! at the conference. So what happens is every morning we would get up early, an hour and a half to two hours before things began, and meet in a room with representatives from the NGOs and the CSOs from around the world to look at the agenda and craft language that could and needed to be delivered at that day's conference at that day's proceedings um, as part of the official record in the debate. So the countries Mm -hmm. get first, the representatives from the countries get first say over when they're debating an issue like farmers' rights, and then they open it up to the NGOs. And so we're organized and we know what we're going to say. And Karen of Global Seed Savers, who was part of our entourage there, had shown such clarity, I would say, and passion about mm-hmm. what was going on in those early morning meetings that as the conference went on later in the week, she was asked by the group consensus to actually read the statement, which was a great honor. That brought me from the sidelines. I'm from the U.S. Nobody's ever cares about the, what the U.S. has to say there as far as small farmers and NGOs. And it took a while to warm up in this group of people. At first, they didn't trust me at all. You can imagine. They go, is this guy a spy? There's somebody here from the United States. That took a little while. In fact, one of the delegates there had seen Seed, the untold story, the movie that Taggart did. And he goes, you're the guy from the movie. (laughs) And then it was okay. He accepted me. And then I was sort of accepted in the group. And that was my summary for the uh, eighth session. So by the time I got to the ninth, people knew who I was and the group. And I introduced Karen and Sherry. And we were all part of the group trying to craft this language every day for Karen to be able to stand up and uh, deliver this thing was like, wow, not only can we be little and come from the outside, we can actually have an effect on what's going on. When Karen, doesn't she live in the States? Karen lives in the Philippines. She's the Philippine director. She's been to the States several times. Oh, very good. Okay. And, and the, and the organization is based, it's basically helps small farmers save seeds and mm-hmm. teaches. They do a tremendous seed schools. They reached 5,000 farmers last year, Greg, through their seed schools and seed school teacher wow. trainings around a model that you're Dang, familiar with. That's more than we've touched. Yeah. They're oddly effective and powerful organization. It's, if you want to give money to a seed saving organization this year, that's the one to give it to. They really are the most operational and effective that I know of. And, that, and I'm honored to have been associated with them. Jewel says, so is digital sequencing similar to genetically engineered seeds? Well, you would use the digitally sequenced information to genetically engineer. In other Mm. words, they can't do the engineering without it. It's the first step. They've got machines now and it's gotten less expensive. 
And there's plans now to sequence everything. We're going to have a group of people and corporations going, you know what? We don't need the planet anymore. We have all the DNA. I'm paraphrasing and, yeah. and being facetious. But in a, some senses, that's what they're saying anyway. They don't care about the small farmers. I mean, I think what undermines their argument is that you can't just mm-hmm. put the world seeds, put them all in gene banks and make it work for very long. First of all, things are adapting on the planet in real time. And now that the climate's changing, those seeds are different than the ones outgrowing in each region mm-hmm. that they were at in the beginning. Number two, they, don't, they can't afford to keep them in those seed banks, let alone take them out and grow them out again. They're going to die. The only way to keep the world's diversity going is to support the small farmers that created it in the first place. Both right. these groups are on the same team. They just have yet to understand that. Figure that out. Yeah, yeah, to figure that out. It'll be really interesting. Terry says, Bill, how are the chili style orange peppers that I gave you at the seed up? Very good. Yeah. Thank you. And I've saved some seeds. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, those are the seeds I want. Yeah. Those are the seeds. I've got the seeds are in my early next year start basket. Deb says, is there a way that small farmers can actually keep their seeds from DSI? Is there a way to effectively protect their seeds from DSI? Number one discussion. CIMIT, which is the Center for Wheat and Maize, corn, which is part of the SEGAR seed bank system, which is also underneath the purview of the United Nations in some ways. It was started with, in a partnership with companies in Rockefeller. They have 170,000 varieties of wheat. Of wheat. Of wheat. Of wheat. If they go sequencing, wow. and, and those have been gathered from around the planet for 100 years, a lot of them from the 60s and 70s, a lot of them from small farmers who had no idea what they were even giving the seeds to. To keep those from being sequenced, if the small farmers in a nation wake up and go, no, you know, those all came from Eastern Turkey. We don't want you doing that anymore. There's just no mechanism to even find out what those would be, let alone what the permissions were in the beginning, to having any sort of an enforcement mechanism to keep somebody, a company or a a country from doing that. And so that's where we are. It's really kind of an interesting. Because seeds are so so portable. You know, know, I had a, a rather seasoned journalist that was at the eighth session tell me that the water's under the bridge in some ways for that. Because all of the big companies, and I won't name names, have secret agents, if you will. They have on-the-ground people in every country in the world or can connect with them that can go in and grab a handful out of a bag or to get whatever they want. The world is so porous still and seeds are so easy to hide that that literally comes down to stealing. It's really an interesting thing. I think the most important thing for me to watch is the awakening into the social internet network of the world's small farmers. Because once they figure out that they own and control the future of agriculture for the planet, they'll start acting differently. (laughs) Probably. I do have something exciting here. Rebecca Newburn's here. They have their 11th annual Seed Library Summit. You can find find it at seedlibraries.net. It's uh, Saturday, February 11th. You go to seedlibraries.net to sign up. If you're at all interested in seed libraries, I would go to this. She says, we have an amazing program scheduled for this year. So there's sessions for 
the Seed Library Summit, Saturday, February 11th, are how to start a seed library, ask a seed librarian, seeds to expand climate adaptation, land race gardening, seed gardens, school seed libraries. Oh, isn't that cool? Seed exchanges, uh, seed saving basics, seed libraries as a response to disaster. That is a really big one that we need to be talking about a lot. Native seeds and pollinators and seed stories. Seedlibraries.net and Rebecca Newburn probably represent the most active grassroots seed saving that's being done in the United States. And it's just incredible. In fact, I'm I'm so over the moon about Navdanya. It's a seed library network, basically. It's what we, Rebecca doesn't have a 70 acre center yet. Maybe that'll come someday where you can bring people from all over the country to be interns and to train them, not just Mm. to be good seed librarians Mm -hmm. and seed keepers, but um, in all the other technical aspects, as well as growing and saving the seeds. And that's what Navdanya does. But boy, what Rebecca's done with the the network is that most important part. I think navdanya has got a hundred other sister seed temples, they call them. Oh, they're all linked nice. and they're, they're saving seed. Nice. Yeah, please. And how exciting, you know, that they're right. That they're, and they're showing the movie seeds of Vandana Shiva at, yep. um, at that summit. So yeah. yeah, if you, if you have a chance to see that, I got a chance the other night for the first time to see it. Oh my God, Greg, I am at Navdanya and I'm been there a day or two and I'm walking up to where I'm staying and a car pulls in from the outside. And that's what I had done. We pulled up in this car into this place and in the parking lot, there's really not a lot there. And it's a little confusing where to go or what to do. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if somebody had been there to open up the door and say, Hey, welcome. This is where you go. There'll be people here, you know, just to get them situated. So I thought, Oh, I'll do that. (laughs) Of course you will. I grabbed the door, opened it up. And the woman goes, Bill McDorman. No way. and I go, what? And it's the filmmaker from Seeds of Vandana Shiva, who I'd met when she was making the film several years before. And she was wow. there to meet Vandana about a project that they're working on. So anyway, <laughs> nice. small, small world, right? Yeah, there the you other go. Side. But don't miss the movie if you can also. And yeah. I don't know if they take donations, but that would be another place to put your, uh, your wholehearted support. That's is the work that Rebecca and the Seed Libraries do. Yeah, seedlibraries.net. And yeah. uh, Rebecca said they have they have Joseph Lofthouse speaking about land races. Yeah. And Nate Kleinman from the Experimental Farm Network will also be talking about diversity to help us adapt to climate change. Wow. Cool. Wendy Weber wants to know, can the sequenced seeds respond to epigenetics? So what that means, what you're you're kind of combining some stuff. So what would have to happen is say, you've got a variety of wheat that is a major commercial value. It's being mm-hmm. sold all over and it's not resistant to a certain pest. And when they sequence them, they put down information for what the specific genes or sequences that they're getting can be good for. So mm-hmm. somewhere in their database, they may find, oh, look, there was a wild wheat somebody got from somewhere a long time ago that is resistant to this, that has the genes that are resistant to this disease. So the old way of doing it would be to go to that country, to go to those people or to go wherever and get the 
right? The variety and bring it and crossbreed it. What they'll do now is they'll sequence down, find out what gene it is that is resistant Mm -hmm. and then look in their database to find that gene and then splice it in using genetic engineering Mm. to make what they say is a quick way around creating a new industrial variety that, that is resistant Mm -hmm. to the disease. That's kind of of theoretically how it works. Now would that plant adapt. Yeah. It's still a plant. It's still a weed. It's still growing. Right. It's a genetically modified one, but, but it would. And I, and I have to say, as far as I know, there, there is no genetically modified wheat being grown commercially yet. Right. We know about in the country, there are experiments and there's all sorts of rumors, but so that hasn't happened with wheat, the example I'm using, but I'm trying to explain what you're talking about there. Yeah. Rebecca says, if you sign up for the summit, you can donate then seedlibraries.net. Perfect. Donna Moore says, this is, this is what I was giggling about a minute ago. Donna says, interesting, wow, interesting information this evening. Thanks for all the international viewpoints, Bill. It was quite eye-opening. I see another rabbit hole to explore with Rebecca Newburn. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just like, so what's going on with the world? And see, since the 70s, the world's awakened to the fact that we're, we've lost maybe 90% of our diversity in our farms and gardens. Mm-hmm. And as we face climate change and population growth, that's not good. Yeah. We want that ecosystem to be strong. We have to have all the diversity we can get. And there was this move to save the world seeds before we lost it. The most important commercial industrial ones. And that's, those ended up in the world's gene banks, so to speak. And now we're emerging from that, realizing that, number one, those varieties haven't been planted in climate change conditions. So they're maybe not Mm. as valuable. Number two, we can't afford to grow them out. We gathered all this stuff, but now we're going, oh my God, we, you know, now what do we do? Uh, Why, because of the cost, because of the cost of the seed? The Global Crop Diversity Trust, which is in charge of the 11 largest gene banks is right now doing a fundraiser to create an endowment to keep the lights on to keep the, the people employed and the lights on in the world's 11 gene banks, plus Svalbard. Oh my gosh. And, which is a backup for all of those, all right? Yeah. They need $850 million to do that in their endowment. And they've only, they've been doing this for several years now. They're not even at half the amount wow. in say the last six years. In that, is a tr- to, that is a train wreck waiting to happen. In order- to take those, that's just to keep the lights on. And at the, at the ninth session, I heard that two of them are in stress, financial stress already. They're having to lay people off or to take, mm-hmm. take steps. So it's not a good situation. But if they were to take their own seeds out, 170,000 varieties a week at Simmons, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and grow them out so they could refresh them. Some of those seeds have been in there for 60 or 70 years now. Wow. At some point, you've got to grow them out. To do that would cost $6.5 billion. That's just at today's cost. And that's a, wow. a low estimate. I've been. And so they can't even raise $650 million, let alone the 10 times that they're going to have to. I'm going to end with this. Nobody's coming to save us, folk. There is no institution that is going to be effective enough yep. to be able to do it. The only way to get this diversity back is for us all to do it. 
and to create millions of seed savers wherever they are. It's the small holder farm network that we already have all over the southern part of the globe that are so important to us. And so we need to support them and understand them, give them their rights to grow and save and share seeds. We need to make sure that we keep that right in this country and keep working on those things. And so I, I have something special, Greg. Can I share my screen and we can go out on that? One of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me is I, when I was at Navdanya, uh, somebody came up to my room and said, Bill, uh, Vandana wants you down at the main circle. And I said, oh, he said, right now. Wow. I said, oh. so okay. I, I, so I went running down there. And the reason she was at Navdanya at that time, she'd been traveling. She had 55 Indian small farmers, all are women from all over India that were completing a course that they had done. And they were all being certified as seed teachers. <sighs> this is like we started doing seed teacher training. Right. So, so these are Indian women seed teachers that are going to go back to their villages all over India and teach seed saving. So I'm going to share. Good night, everybody. educate as many people to save seeds as we can. We need to start seed teacher training centers like this. And when we do, let's always remember to have song and dance to yeah. inspire ourselves at the end of it. And that's, that's my holiday wishes for everybody. There you go. Thank you, Bill. It is an absolute delight, your partnership and your dedication to this. This is our seventh year doing these and our, I think our ninth or 10th year of doing seed school online and thank you thank you thank you thank you goodbye everybody thanks have a good one bye guys we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast remember to listen for tips advice and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming you can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org in the words of vincent van gogh great things are done by a series of small things brought together Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.